So we understand that perhaps you're tired of hearing about the Supreme Court taking away people's rights. Um, I mean, but it's so fun. It's so uplifting living in America right now. Pretty great. But, you know, what's important is the process behind how the Supreme Court does this, you know, and depending on the result of the midterms, we may be seeing this more and with a much wider scope. So on that topic, today's episode is about what the Supreme Court did with immigration this past July. And if I said that and you're asking, wait, what? Okay, wait, like raising my hand, but you can't see me (laughs) right here. But yes, what? All right. So if that's your reaction, this episode is really for you. Because white people, you keep asking us what you can do differently to be more anti-racist. So we're spending the summer going through things in a bite-sized way so that we know the basics around the most commonly asked questions and issues around racism that we see in this country. And again, we'd like to emphasize that this is not a checklist. This is simply a primer. So if you want more, go buy our book, Dear White Women, Let's Get Uncomfortable Talking About Racism, which is full of people's stories, real history, and action steps for you to take. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast. We are your biracial Japanese and white hosts, Sarah and Misasha. We've been best friends for 25 years, ever since we met as undergrads at Harvard. And now Misasha is a lawyer, which is why she can talk about this sort of stuff. She's married to a black man and has very mixed race boys the world sees as black. I am Sarah. I'm a life coach. I'm married to a white Canadian man, and I have two white presenting girls. Together, We help white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism without centering themselves in the process. All righty. So I raised my hand, pleading forgiveness and (laughs) begging for education. The title of this episode is How a Single Judge from Texas Controlled U.S. Immigration Policy. But this is where I'm like, I thought the president controls immigration policy, so I don't get it. Can we have you please explain, my brilliant friend? Yeah, so great question, because you're right. Immigration policy is actually part of a presidential administration, right? So it's typically set out by the executive branch, in other words, the president, and then is executed in, you know, now, I guess, by Ali Mayorkas, who is the secretary of the Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Homeland Security, which incidentally was only founded in late 2002 in the wake of 9-11. So you won't hear a lot about the Department of Homeland Security or anything about it before that point. DHS is the third largest cabinet department, by the way. So it's pretty big. And the numbers one and two in orders of size are the Departments of Defense and the Department of Veterans Affairs, by the way. So if this helps you in your next trivia night win, just saying, I expect to hear about it. Department of Defense, Veteran Affairs, Department of Homeland Security. Got it. See, there you go. You're ready to win. All right. So anyway, as Slate notes, last September, Secretary Mayorkas used this authority that he has in his role to set out the Biden's administration's vision for immigration enforcement. So the Mayorkas enforcement priorities sought to primarily use DHS resources on removing individuals who posed a threat to national security a threat to public safety, and as part of that, prioritized recent arrivals over undocumented immigrants who have been contributing to our communities for years. Okay. So, so far, that makes a lot of sense to me, right? For security, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And part of this was also that agents were told to consider each person's circumstances individually, 
before deciding to move forward with arrest and deportation. And so for those people who were not priorities, the policy emphasized that agents should not waste resources on going after people solely because they are undocumented, which makes sense, right? And, you know, we see this in other parts of our world, including the legal system as well. For example, local prosecutors not wasting their time on misdemeanor pot charges and instead focusing their time and energy to prosecute, let's say, drug dealers and people using harder drugs. First, I believe it's called cannabis or marijuana, not pot anymore. (laughs) And I think this depends on where you live and what color your skin is, right? But overall, I'm glad to hear that prosecutors are told, generally speaking, not to prioritize those and really focus on things that will cause more damage. That makes sense. Yes. And the focus is misdemeanor, right, versus felony, what that charge looks like. And I should asterisk this hugely because prosecutors have, right, a lot of power in deciding who and what to charge, right? So just like prosecutors, the president under the Constitution in the area of immigration enforcement has exceptionally broad powers, right? And this ability of the president to do this has been widely recognized for generations. For example, In 1999, Justice Antonin Scalia, who was highly conservative, his opinion in Reno versus AAADC said that at each stage of the deportation process, the executive, in other words, the president, has discretion to abandon the endeavor. So in other words, president has the right to change his or her mind completely along the way. Similarly, in 2012, Justice Anthony Kennedy wrote in Arizona versus United States that a principal feature of the removal system is the broad discretion exercised by immigration officials. So notably, and Kennedy, right, not as conservative as Scalia, because it's really hard to find someone who is as conservative as Scalia, right? So notably, you've got a whole range of ideologies at the Supreme Court saying the same thing. The president has a whole lot of power here. Okay, so I get it. And so Secretary Mayorkas puts this policy in place that's part of Biden's agenda. And yet it sounds like if the Supreme Court is considering what's going on right now, this must have been challenged along the way. So what's the story with what's going on? Okay, right. So remember how Secretary Mayorkas set out these policies in September, right? And they were kind of different than what we had seen under the past administration. And by kind of, I mean extremely different, right? So there's a lot of people out there super pissed at President Biden for not continuing the former administration's president, ex-president Trump's war on undocumented immigrants. And they figured out how to get back at him. So last year, again, according to Slate, Texas handpicked a district court with a Trump-appointed judge and sued to halt the implementation of these new priorities. Okay, so the judge, whose name is Drew Tipton, ruled in Texas's favor, declaring that a 1996 law eliminated presidential discretion in immigration enforcement without anyone having noticed this for the past 25 years. Uh, Right, because both of the justices' opinions that you talked about were in 99 and 2012, after this supposed 96 law. Right. So Judge Tipton's ruling also stated that no DHS secretary can implement new priorities without first going through an onerous and time-consuming regulatory process. So that Texas judge ruled that. Then the super conservative fifth district or the fifth circuit, which is the where any appeal would go to after a Texas judge rules on that, then refused a Department of Justice request to halt this ruling. 
And this ruling actually doesn't just apply in Texas. It's because this is a federal court. It applies nationwide. And this is where my brain continues to blow up because the number of times that people in state justice judicial systems can make rules that apply to the rest of the country just are blowing my mind because, you know, basically what they're doing is they're gaming the system and it sucks. So is this when the Supreme Court got the case? Right. So once the Fifth Circuit refused that Department of Justice request, right, the Biden administration then asked the Supreme Court for emergency relief because that's what handles challenges to in the circuits, right? So that the Department of Homeland Security can continue to imply its enforcement priorities. And this should have been a really easy decision. You know, as the University of Texas School of Law professor Steve Vladek has documented, the Supreme Court, when we're thinking about the past administration, right, the Trump administration, the Supreme Court agreed to step in on behalf of that administration in similar situations 11 out of 12 times, even though it eventually ruled against the administration in all but one case. You know, but the fact is they stepped in, right, to do exactly what the Biden administration asked for this time. What they're saying is just until this case is heard, can we not please get, just get on with what we want to get done? Right. They're just asking for permission to do execute their priorities. Right. Yes, because they want this case to be under review. Right. So they're saying, let's not do anything that changes these priorities until we have a final decision. Right. OK. But this time the Supreme Court didn't go along with that in a 5-4 ruling. And the four dissenting judges, justices, three of whom you'd expect, Sotomayor, Kagan, and Jackson, and one for whoever, who I don't even know why, Amy Coney Barrett, noted that they would have stayed the lower court order, which is what we were just talking about, which would have allowed for the Biden administration's policies to continue pending that Supreme Court review. So what's notable is when the Supreme Court denied that emergency relief, they also set the case for argument for the late fall of 2022, right? Which means that, as we've seen this year, cases are argued in the fall, decisions come out in June, right? So for almost a year, because that means the decision will come out in June 2023, DHS agents will have no guidance on resource prioritization and will be free to largely ignore what the duly elected and appointed leaders of the executive branch, namely President Biden and Secretary Mayorkas, in this regard, you know, acting out President Biden's administration's policies have instructed them to do. So, I mean, what could go wrong there? And, you know, the answer is everything, by the way. I love your sarcasm because that's how I know you. But just really, in terms of what could go wrong, from what I'm hearing, it's like a lot more people who are not threats to our nation might be deported, including undocumented immigrants who've been longtime residents of this country, to much more horrific living conditions in their native countries or in holding areas in Mexico or other third party countries. Right. There could be. Is this right? Like more kids being separated from their families with systems that are so overwhelmed that we can't focus our resources on those who are are like actually threats to our country. Is that like what could potentially go wrong? Yes. I mean, the Biden administration did sort of win that remain in Mexico, you know, sort of got that part overturned slightly. So that is good. Tiny bit. And I keep making these like motions with my hands, like little tiny forms of relief. Un poco. Yeah. <laughs> But that's pretty much correct, because much like prosecutors, remember, we talked about prosecutors having wide ranges of discretion and who and what to charge. This kind of gives DHS officials and the same latitude without a priority chart, 
right? So it's not going to say like, let's, hey, let's go after these types of individuals who have been known to be threats to security, right? Threats to national security, threats to safety. Or let's look at the recent immigrants first in this respect. They're not going to do that, right? So basically, every case that comes up, you're you get to decide how you're going to do that in without these guidelines and sort of guardrails even not even guidelines guardrails i would say i'm just still shaking my head i guess also and in addition to that in terms of concerning levels of like consequences that sounds like it sucks but it it also sounds like you were pointing out before it's a break from recent scotus behavior since they did support trump's administration so is it possible that this is maybe more than just an immigration issue. Um, so you'd be right there too, because what's underlying this decision is not just immigration, right? It, it appears to be a growing sense among the conservative majority in the Supreme Court, because remember, we do have a 6-3 court right now, really on that front, that undocumented immigrants have won themselves too many rights over the last couple of generations, and they have to be reminded, right, who's in charge here? And I think that it's a bonus points in some way that this also hurts the Biden administration because this is clearly Biden administration immigration policies that they're trying to uphold here. So that is a win, I think, for the conservative majority. And as we've talked about a number of times on this podcast and as we talk about in our book, immigration law in this country has been very hard, right? So that is sort of the baseline of where we are, you know, from the Chinese Exclusion Acts to Japanese internment and incarceration to Trump's travel ban. The Supreme Court has in the past really adopted a draconian view of the government's authority to wield nearly unchecked power against non-citizens, right? Because even if those things happen, they come back in and smack them down in the end. And as professor of law at Penn State, Professor Wadia has documented that harsh power has historically been accompanied by an equally strong authority to exercise mercy and grace, right, which is really, really important. So for over a century, the executive branch has used inherent and statutory authority to allow immigrants to remain in the country even when the law suggests they must leave. And from 1929 to 1986, Congress regularly updated a, quote, statute of limitations for undocumented immigrants known as the registry, which allowed people a, quote, good moral character, which, I mean, sure, that is subjective, but okay. Right. Like what does that mean? Like, yeah. Okay. Who had resided peacefully in the United States since the date set by Congress to apply for green cards. Right. So to address that issue that we were talking about earlier of the length of time that people had been undocumented in this country and had contributed to society. Right. That was a factor. So this sense of mercy really is part of immigration law in this country itself. Right. Which has so many waivers and forms of relief from re removal that really permit the executive branch to give people a second chance. And I love that, that sense of mercy, basically seeing that, hey, look, this kid was born in the United States, may have been, or sorry, was brought over as a child and has never known their country. Like they're a human being who actually is more American in anything other than a piece of paper that says anything about them. So I love that the humanity could potentially and has been recognized here. Yeah, well, I mean, it was until 1986, really. Wah, um, wah, and I wah. think, you know, we're going to talk about some of this in the fall, right? But in the decades after 1986, really, sadly, the idea that an undocumented immigrant could be a person of good moral character became kind of a controversial issue. And in 1996, a Congress that was known to be tough on crime, and heavy air quotes, stripped many of these paths 
for mercy out of immigration law altogether because they believe that immigration judges were being too soft in this balance, right? And by the time Trump took office, we've replaced all of that mercy with these diatribes about, quote, murderers and rapists. Let's not forget. And let's not also forget Stephen Miller. Okay, I think that says everything right there about the U.S.'s immigration policy. Didn't we do a whole episode on like your enemy of your enemy? Still hate Stephen Miller. Yep. Anyway, so I guess the asterisk here, the silver lining is that despite all of those obstacles, like what you were talking about, Sarah, we still have like DACA, right, which gave over 800,000 people who'd grown up here a chance at temporary security. Although I'd just like to point out that when Texas started suing to block immigration policies, always Texas started suing to block immigration policies back in 2014, it's really only because Scalia died that this whole policy was allowed to survive, right? But, you know, what in like researching this and reading this, you know, very impactful slate piece about it, this last part was really the most impactful in my mind and maybe in yours, too. And it says to the Texas judges who now seemingly run the Department of Homeland Security, the only legitimate action a president can take when it comes to undocumented immigrants is deportation. But even immigration law, which has dehumanized non-citizens for generations, and we just talked about some of those examples, still acknowledges the need for mercy. And if the Supreme Court can't recognize that, we're in trouble. Because law enforcement without mercy or grace is authoritarianism. And let's just all sit with that last sentence for a second, because it took my breath away at how true that was. Because in law enforcement without mercy or grace is authoritarianism, right? So in true to form, like action, right? What can we do about this for our summer of action? I think the things that that you and I came to was, first of all, learn about our history of immigration in this country and understand what the Biden administration, Secretary Mayorkas and DHS are all trying to uphold here. I'm with you. It can feel confusing and complicated because I don't have lawyer brain like me, Sasha, but we do have to understand more than we currently do. Secondly, vote, because for states, when you can vote judges into office, you need judges who are going to embrace that mercy and grace as well. And prosecutors, I should add. Oh, yeah. Like, is prosecutors different? And that's different than attorney generals. Or is that also? Yes. Okay. Yes. But also important. Okay. Third of all, tell people about this episode and about our book and about what SCOTUS is doing so that when that decision comes out next year in 2023, you're ready to either get loud about what's wrong with it or tell people why that decision was right. And finally, there are a lot of organizations at the border and groups who serve under undocumented immigrants that'll need money, volunteers, and support to fight this battle as well. Races, I think we've done some fundraising and pointed websites in their direction before, but it's R-A-I-C-E-S. They're great. We also personally love United We Dream. And I will just say this to end, we cannot stay silent or look the other way because that is what they would like us to do. We've got to stand for all of us, or it is increasingly clear that it's none of us. You've just listened to the Dear White Women podcast with your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Yes, we're on social media. And yes, you can hire us to do talks about our book. But the biggest thing, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to receive our free materials. Head over to DearWhiteWomen.com to get on the list. <laughs>